Well, thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If When, we discuss situational responsiveness and leadership lessons in the context of uncertainty with two very distinguished guests. Joining me today are General Stan McChrystal, founder and chief executive officer, McChrystal Group, and Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, Jacobs Senior Vice President, Strategic Development, Critical Mission Solutions. Uh, thank you both, uh, General McChrystal and General Crawford, for joining me. I have been given permission to both call you both by your first name, so that was very important to me to ask that. So to begin, I'd like to start with Stan. Uh, sir, how would you coach leaders who are used to more traditional hierarchical models of command to shift to embrace more distributed models of leadership? Paul, thanks for the question, and thanks for having Bruce and I on, and, and Bruce, thanks for joining on today and for all you've done. I think the first thing is most of us have to understand that's the way we were raised. We are almost reflexively hierarchical leaders, and the, the operating rhythm we put into organizations, the way we think about giving instructions is based on years of programming. And so you have to understand that that's your default. And sometimes it's the right answer, but you also have to understand often it's not the right answer. What I found fairly early in my career, about 10 years in, I was a ranger company commander, and I suddenly had these wonderfully talented non-commissioned officers, and they didn't need me to do their job, and they didn't want me to do their job, and they were outspoken enough to communicate that to me. And and so what I would say, the first thing is for leaders is understand that your people are probably as smart and as competent as you, if not more so. You have to start with that expectation and you have to let go a little bit. And the biggest question I get from people is, well, if I let my subordinates have a tremendous amount of freedom, I'm still responsible for the outcome. You know, that, that is risk to me. And I will say in the short term and in a very narrow sense, that, that may be true. In the long term, it's the exact opposite in the long term, the organization. So it all begins at home. You got to first look in the mirror and decide that what you were was nice, but what you need to be is different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, a, a great example of kind of what you're talking about, I think you articulate uh, in your book, Team of Teams, and, you know, being in, on the ground in Iraq and in Afghanistan, and you're dealing with like non-traditional combatants, you know, who don't, want to fight you with maybe the rules that you had been trained in your military training. You know, they, they're bringing different engagement models to you. Now, now, in that book, you know, you use chess and gardening as metaphors for leadership styles. You know, can you describe those briefly and why you prefer one over the other, especially in today's complex operational environment? Sure. That, the analogy seemed to fit. A chess board has a chess master or at least a chess player controlling 16 pieces. And that one individual decides where every one of the pieces goes. And the theory is you're against one opponent on the other side who's also controlling 16 pieces. And so micromanagement works. In fact, it's required. Mm -hmm. When you get to a faster, more complex environment, what we found, what I found in Iraq was suddenly... There are a lot of very autonomous enemy forces making decisions, operating, adapting, and moving. And so I wasn't opposed to a single enemy leader who was micromanaging their force. It was much more loosely networked or organic. And so they were wickedly fast, constantly adapting, and really lethal. Mm -hmm. 
I had been raised to want to be the chess master. I mean, you, you, you work your way up and you want to move the chess pieces and you want to think you're good at that. But the reality is there's no way you can be fast enough. There's no way you can adapt for the conditions in each location well enough. Mm-hmm. So you just can't compete. So that was really the biggest transformation of my personal life, my leadership life was in that period. And this is when Bruce and I met in Iraq was during the fight against Al-Qaeda in Iraq when to win, I had to be a different kind of leader than I'd been before for for my organization to succeed. Mm -hmm. It started with me having to let go. Now, that doesn't mean I walked away and took my eyes and hands off. We called it eyes on hands off leadership. Mm -hmm. But it was a different style that the gardening analogy seemed to fit where you create an environment where plants do that which only plants can do. Mm-hmm. And you you create an ecosystem and you manage that. It's a different role for a leader who wants to be the person in charge, moving chess pieces. But ultimately, it's far more effective in in the modern environment. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and Paul, just to just to piggyback on that and mm-hmm. uh, a little bit, because then we'll have a discussion about uh, leadership traits of the future. Mm-hmm. This environment that General McChrystal describes, first of all, the leader has to acknowledge. Uh, that there is going to have to be a different type of leadership required in the future to win. That's a tough thing, mm-hmm. given how most leaders are raised, and he, and he hit on that. But the, the, the second piece of it is a lot of this, quote-unquote, creating that environment, it happened, has to happen before need, meaning it's one of those things you have to cultivate as a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, there is absolutely no substitute for preparation. And so a part of the training, a part of the kind of institutional change that has to happen to create that is incumbent upon the leader. Meaning this isn't what he described isn't something in it that can be created today and literally used tomorrow. Yeah, uh, It's one of those systemic things that has to be you know, incremental, incrementally done. First, acknowledge different type of leader required in the future. But the second piece is as the leader, regardless of what echelon you're in, you have to create that environment. All right. That's not something you can delegate to your deputy to say, go off and create the environment that's going to allow this different type of thinking and this different type of culture uh, to emerge and be successful in the future. Yeah. And I imagine that underpinning all of that is trust. Right. You know, so yes. it's like you, it, it kind of goes back you know, to, uh, you know, Stan, what you said earlier about um, your subordinates having I, I think there had to have been a certain element of trust where they could manage up so to speak you know so that allowed you to do what you needed to do and them to do what they needed to do now bruce you recently contributed a chapter uh in a book uh called navigating the digital age in which you admonish readers you know to forget about the new normal right we've been hearing about the new normal this past year and instead focus on the new now and can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by new now and the key things that you know we should be focusing on especially in the post covid environment Paul, thanks for that. And and uh, what you're referring to is, you know, while I was in my transition, I had took about 90 days off to think about, you know, who I am and and what I think I wanted to do and move and had a new grandbaby uh, show up and all those kinds of cool things. And I was approached by Palo Alto Networks. They said, look, we we heard you speak at a panel about 90 days ago and you talked about this concept of the the new normal, but you you, you were talking about this thing called the new now. And, well, how does that resonate? Where'd you come up with that? How'd you come up with that? Uh, we listened in on, it was a, actually it was a West Point 
uh, Naval Academy and uh, an Air Force Academy cyber conference and uh, mm-hmm. that, that I spoke at. And so this was literally during the transition before I decided what I was going to do. And initially I said, no, I just give you this as context because I'm going, look, I, I got to find a house. Uh, I got, you know, but I went back and thought and said, you know, I've done op-eds, but I've mm-hmm. never done anything like this. And it might be interesting. And so I decided to do it. But that is the backdrop. So the literally people coming out of, I won't say on the front end of COVID, and I know, Dom Crystal, you, you saw a lot of this. People were longing for the good old days. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and so every five minutes, there was a different variant of new normal. You know, what's the new normal going to be, et cetera. And as I often do, I was out running. I, I truly believe that's where all good, great ideas uh, emanate. But I was out on a morning run uh, off of Fort McNair where I was living in, in downtown uh, D.C. And I started thinking about this going, this can't be it. It can't be it. And when I say it, that all we need to do is figure out what the new normal looks like. And uh, just a little bit of intellectual curiosity led me to go, listen, there's got to be something else. All right. Uh, Because so so new normal. Think about 9-11. I happened to be in the Pentagon on 9-11. I was a brand new lieutenant colonel uh, in in the Army. Mm -hmm. And if you think about what happened right after 9-11 and Bill McCrystal, I know you were deeply involved in the shaping of of a lot of this our force posture changed immediately, overnight. There were things we adopted literally within 24 to 48 hours of 9-11, such as things we're doing at our post camps and stations from a security perspective, but things we were doing in an airport. You could argue, and uh, although technology has evolved significantly since we adopted those things, that 12 months ago, 18, 16, 15 months ago, when we really started on this COVID, post-COVID and pandemic journey, that when you look back, to 9-11, we're still literally doing some of those things, things that we adopted within 48, 72 hours of mm-hmm. 9-11. You know, categorically, we're still doing these things. When I started thinking about the new normal, a new now, I said, you know, some something's fundamentally different here. That this idea uh, of a uh, of a new now took into account the fact that every day we woke up for the past 18 months, there is a new variable in the equation. Uh, that required us to be a lot more adaptive, a lot more intellectually curious, and a lot more creative in our thinking. And it didn't matter whether you ran a business, all right? If you're focusing the adaptation post-COVID of your business on this idea that, number one, there's an end state, all right? And I just need to get to that end state. And these variables that started last March, well, they're going to remain the same throughout the next 24 to 36 months. So it doesn't matter whether you're in the Army, uh, the military, or you're running a business, you've got this the, the fundamental difference between the longing for a new normal and this big idea of new now is this adaptive mindset. Back to the earlier point, and it actually ties to that, that things are going to be different and that you've got to focus not on an end state, but more of on, on the fact that there's a cascading series of future states that are likely to emerge and shape your thinking, which allows you to not only continuously adapt, and there's a lot of work, this is just words on paper here, I got it, mm-hmm. but not only continuously adapt, but to also uh, adapt at speed and scale over time. If you're able to create that environment that says things are going to change, let's not focus on an end state, let's mm-hmm. focus on a cascading series of object, uh, future states where variables in the equation will change over time. And so I know, again, this is you know, just talking, but I, I literally, while I was running, said this 
longing for the days of old and just getting people back to that cannot be the answer. There's got to be more. Hence, this idea of, of a new now, uh, vice a new normal. Mm. Hopefully I, that's helpful. Yeah, and I really liked what you said about the cascading series of events. Like it's, you know, the now will evolve or there'll be new nows, right? Or, or, you know, new states, because we, we have no idea of like what is going to, uh, to occur, you know, in terms of like big scale events, but then also just like the, the constant evolution and fluidity of, of data and technology and, you know, disruptiveness. So it's like, you know, we're constantly having to change and evolve and, and be, be able to respond to that. Now, now Bruce, you know, in business, as in warfare, today's threat environment is potentially much more complex than ever before. You know, and data and technology, of course, are enabling much of that. How can organizations pivot to more nimble methods of response? Well, from, from a data perspective, and you've heard it uh, stated in the context of this whole idea of great power competition. It's not just military. There's an economic piece, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so being able to leverage data to inform back to getting to speed. I've heard it described as being able to orient, decide, and act faster than period adversaries, and there are different variants of that. Really, really important that we be able to leverage data to inform that ability to do that. And so as we look at the, you know, the current threat environment, everyone wants to stay one step ahead, whether it's a cybersecurity discussion or it's a more, you know, a kinetic, you know, more, more of a kinetic discussion. I've always thought that being able to harness the data uh, that we have and make sure that that data is shareable uh, at Echelon is a key cog in the wheel there, so to speak. And so the good news is we got a lot of data. When I say we, I'm talking the collective we across the United States, or you can talk about DOD, et cetera. The bad news is not most of that data is in a state, either a location where it can't be shared where it's in a location where it's not visible, et cetera, and it can't be uh, protected in the right way. And so if you go back and take a look at, you can go back as far as the cybersecurity solarium of like last year, the solarium report, or you can just kind of go a month or so ago and look at the recent POTUS executive order, you know, uh, reference cybersecurity, all come back to this idea of being able to leverage data as a strategic asset. I got an opportunity to sit in recently just last week, and I heard every chief data officer in DOD, it wasn't just OSD, but it was every service chief data officer, every one of them has some type of initiative on the conveyor belt, moving literally left to right to, quote unquote, leverage data as a more strategic asset in the organization, whether they're leveraging it uh, to weaponize it or they're leveraging it to try and protect it better. Back to your question, great question. How do you, and specifically, I'd say moving it to another level, how do you as an organization, whether you're uh, a business or you're uh, the Department of the Army or, or the DOD or one of our FedSIB uh, agencies, how do you create this culture in your organization where data can be leveraged as more of a strategic asset? Mm-hmm. Can I jump on that? Because... Paul, I think General just nailed it on two points which are related, and they're almost a precursor to any discussion about leadership in the future. The first is we are going to be going against moving targets. Everything's going to be moving, therefore it's constant adaptation, as he described. Mm -hmm. And then the idea is we are going to need data to know where the targets are moving. And so we are going to have to have the facility to digest that data 
and then the adaptability to deal with it. And, and almost you ought, you ought to play what he said there as the beginning part of any discussion on leadership for future leaders. Now, where does this take us? Mm-hmm. In, in my opinion, what that means is we as leaders have got to recalculate a little bit. We've got to recalculate how our systems operate, not just how we function as leaders, but how our systems around us, how our information comes and is distributed across the organization, where and how decisions are made, which I would argue they're going to need to get closer to the point of action because you'll need to be operating faster. And we now have the ability to push data and therefore conclusions closer. You know, we don't have to keep it at the headquarters of the C-suite. Mm-hmm. We can push it down to where smart people. But then the other thing we have to do is we have to push an expectation of action. Mm-hmm. We have to push through our organizations this idea that we not only want you to make decisions, we expect you to make decisions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's different for old guys like me because, you know, I spent all my life getting senior enough so I could make all the decisions. My dad used to have a, my dad was a soldier and he, had this joke when I would help him. He was a big craftsman. I'd be helping him by fetching tools and he'd go, put your brains in the footlocker. I'll do the thinking around here. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's, we got to go in the opposite direction now because nothing else works. I would just for, for 30 seconds on the data discussion. So yeah. absolutely treating data as a strategic asset will be very important. Mm-hmm. There's also the D word and I call it the, the D word is divestiture. We've got to be willing to let go of the old things, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, because that you know, one of the barriers to—I I won't call it just change. The adaptation I found is, you know, everybody's for change as long as it's you changing mm-hmm. uh, and being able to create this culture of you know leveraging data as a strategic asset. I found a way, not the way, mm-hmm. is to acknowledge that there's got to be divestiture of the old in order to fuel the new, mm-hmm. uh, because they're you know culturally, again, it, you know. Everyone's talking, you know, there's a lot of great discussions and a lot of really smart people are talking about digitization. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, I haven't cautioned, but what I've come in and said is the biggest, you know, I'd say pillar and the center of gravity of digitization has got to be culture, mm-hmm. right? You know, you could be handing out free money from a digital side, but no one will take it because culturally they don't trust it, back, back to trust. Mm-hmm. And so I'd, I'd say a big part of this idea of leveraging data since we're having a data discussion as a strategic asset, mm-hmm. has got to be divestiture and a willingness to divest of legacy, legacy in this particular case, non-authoritative data sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, has got to just be a part of our thinking. Yeah. And let me, so let me pick up on that a little bit on, on some of these threads here. And I'll, I'll start with you, Stan. And then Bruce, I've got a question as a follow-up for you, but so Stan, and you kind of, you hit on some of this, but you know, what tangible steps can leaders take to encourage agility and organizational decision-making, you know, perhaps in response to on-the-ground conditions while maintaining the integrity and respect of their command? You know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's one thing that like to have that mindset, okay, I'm going to be more, I'm going to maybe loose is not necessarily the right word, but I'm going to loosen the reins a little bit and allow the horse to run some, but what can you actually do to like put that into, into practice? I I will tell you the conclusions I've derived from my experience. And remember, this is a data point of one, one guy. Mm -hmm. Um, First is you need to understand what's not negotiable, what's not flexible. And those are your core values. Mm-hmm. That is things like integrity, things like the law of armed conflict. I mean, 
we take them for granted, but they're very, very important. And you have to have those mooring points to hook it in you as an individual and the organization to something because not everything's negotiable. Mm -hmm. Now, once you've determined what can't slide or move, then sort of everything else is in play. And what I would say is you've got to start with the idea that some of the things which make organizations traditionally operate in a in an effective discipline way, doctrine, process, procedure, they have a value, but they also are two-edged swords. And you've got to be careful. You're not getting cut with the other edge. You put so much process in that you get bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. You put so much connectivity in that people start misusing that connectivity to go to the boss for every decision. And so you've got to realize that in the case of the military, doctrine worked for us. But I would also argue when we got into Iraq and Afghanistan, doctrine also worked against us. Mm. There were some people who felt if I did it the way the checklist said that I was doing the right answer. And in, in reality, I was taught as a lieutenant, if it's stupid and it works, it ain't stupid. Mm. So, you know, we've got to craft ourselves as leaders and our organizations with the idea we're out to get a certain outcome and that's what matters. And we have to, every time the conditions change, we need to be changing with them as fast as we can figure it out. Mm -hmm. Now, and to that point, Bruce, you know, I mean, we live in a world and, and I love this date. I love this point. There's, there's 44 zettabytes of data in the world. And a zettabyte is a one with 21 zeros behind it. And it's, they, they, I think it's the IDC. They expect it to jump up to 180 zettabytes. I think in the next like 10 years, I mean, it's just, it's an obscene amount of data that, you know, is being generated by like all the devices on earth and whatnot. So you, you take that ecosphere you know, there's so much to know and to parse out, you know, but decision-making capabilities are greatly enhanced. But, you know, so my question for you, Bruce, is what qualities of human leadership do you see as necessary to ensure organizations stay true to their missions and don't go off chasing windmills? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the obvious of, of character uh, and, and competence, you know, John McChrystal talked about trust earlier. Mm -hmm. If you're competent, and, uh, and, and you take care of people, there's a whole lot of trust that happens uh, you know, relatively quickly, uh, that people understand that you're not just the guy who's uh, telling them what to do, that you're willing to do some of these things yourselves and demonstrate that. Th those are at the very uh, top of, of my list. But a couple of others that I've seen, again, John uh, McChrystal's written about a couple of these in, in, in a couple of his books. And just a couple of experiences uh, on my behalf and things that I've seen uh, in, in a variety of different units for 34 years. We talked about adaptability and, mm -hmm. and, and that's thrown out there. Uh, we want you to be agile and adaptive without uh, taking the, you know, taking the time to explain to young people why that's going to be important. We want you to be agile and adaptive because you're going to face adversity, mm -hmm. right? Uh, if things are just going smoothly, you're good. You know, you can just kind of keep doing what you're doing and you're going to assume some success. But this idea of being agile and being adapted uh, gets to you becoming more resilient over time. All right. Mm -hmm. That when you get knocked down, that you're regardless of what life throws at you or what the mission throws at you, that you're willing to get up, you know, get up and continue. All right. And you feel empowered to do that. All right. So that, that that's just a couple. The other one, though, is a little a little bit more abstract and it's 
this idea that you're willing to surround yourself with people who think completely different uh, than you do. I call it the avoiding the mini-me syndrome. Uh, I talked to everyone from second lieutenants to general officers that I mentored in my last job mm -hmm. and said, listen, you know, I had uh, my grandfather who raised me uh, who uh, who couldn't read or write. All right. Uh, but he used to say something, you know, if you, if you fish in a goldfish pond, all you catch are goldfish. Uh, I've heard that over and over and over again with other leaders uh, that have you know, encountered and became mentors to me over the years. His big reason for, for saying that and what I took away from that mm -hmm. uh, was, listen, uh, if, if you want that same outcome, keep fishing right here. But if you want a different outcome, mm -hmm. uh, be willing to surround yourself with people who think differently than you do. And create an environment where when the emperor has no clothes, that there's a hand that people feel empowered to come tell you. And I had this happen a lot over the years. All right. It, General Crawford, that is the, the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> what about consider this? And you don't shoot the messenger. So there, there are a variety of different things that are really, really important in terms of leadership traits mm -hmm. uh, to a variety of different really, really smart uh, thought leaders that are out there. But being agile and adaptive, uh, absolutely but just a little bit more abstract, be willing to surround yourself with people who think differently and then create an environment where it's okay for them to come tell you mm. that your bright idea is actually the worst one they've ever heard. Nah. And, <laughs> and, be willing, and be willing to accept their offering of a different approach. Mm. It's just something that I'd offer given the, the likelihood that, you know, of the future that we're gonna face. Mm. I gotcha. So um, kind of to wrap things up uh, a little bit here, General McChrystal, what leadership strategies learned from your military career seem to you the most applicable to organizations contending with situations of massive disruption? I guess I'd start with humility. Unless you are much better than most people I know, you're not going to have all the right answers, nor are you going to get it right every time. So the first thing is your strategy should be to harness as much of the talent across the organization as you can. Mm -hmm. Get them engaged, have them participate, have them make decisions. Um, sometimes it's a touch slower. Sometimes it's a little bit more frustrating. But the reality is at the end of the day, it will produce a better, more flexible outcome. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And humility. I mean, it's it's this gold, right? And it's like, it's so hard, but like all the best leaders, it seems like really have that innate sense. They've really embraced humility. And, uh, and from there, there goes trust, right? That's where trust is allowed to flourish. Uh, and then Bruce, what do the leaders of tomorrow need to be doing today? So I've actually got what I hope is a leader of tomorrow on a young captain. Mm -hmm. uh, who uh, came recently came back from Afghanistan is going to grad school now uh, in the family, uh, same name. Uh, wh what I talked to him about is diversity of assignments. Absolutely, you want to take on the hard jobs, mm -hmm. but I suspect uh, when you, you, you look at the, the bios of very successful people who've been game changers, one of which we're talking to here on the screen, they took on uh, a couple of jobs they didn't want early on. Uh, because someone made them, you know, no, you're not going to go do this job that, you know, when you're looking from the bottom up going, boy, that's the dream job. You're going to go do this job. And later on in life, that job, because I've had several of those, mm -hmm. um, where uh, it provided you with insights that you couldn't pay for. All right. The, the fact that you took that experience. Uh, and so my advice to young people now uh, is really take on the hard jobs, but 
don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. Okay, in one of those jobs, especially if you aspire to have a career, make this a career, uh, because uh, you're going to you're going to exercise some muscles that you either didn't know you had or hadn't used in a long time. They're going to be very beneficial to you down the road. And so uh, the only other point that I wanted to make uh, that's related to the broader discussion that we've had, Mm -hmm. um, it's not maybe as much advice to young people, but it is a think piece that involves the young people. And it's a sole idea of the workforce of tomorrow. And the bigger idea is reimagining the workforce of the future mm-hmm. and, uh, and taking a step back. The, the geezers of my, my, my generation here and taking a th- step back and say, listen, then the workforce that we're talking about, especially in business, is no longer motivated by the things that maybe motivated General McChrystal and motivated me mm-hmm. uh, coming into the, you know, to the military. Mm-hmm. All right. There's this thing that I've learned called work-life balance. Really important to you. <laughs> All right. And uh, and so when you think about what motivates them, perhaps it's not just money. Now, that didn't motivate us coming into the military. But when you start to look at the workforces that we're out speaking to now in industry, the things that motivate them are, are, are things like meaningful work. OK. Mm-hmm. And making sure that, uh, you know, doing meaningful work on a daily basis and under, making sure that their voice is counted, that their vote figuratively counts in the organization and that the boss that they work for really cares about, you know, what they think. And so uh, you've read many stories and a lot of really good books have been written about the race for talent. And it's a global international race for the best and brightest that are out there. Mm -hmm. Perhaps as we take a look at that, uh, we should consider the fact that as we reimagine the workforce of the future and start to develop that next greatest generation of leaders, that the things that will keep them on your team aren't the same things that kept us on the team over the years. And perhaps mm-hmm. meaningful work and putting them in environments um, where they can do meaningful work, things that matter will, will go a long way towards not only getting them, but keeping them and inspiring them. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well, General McChrystal and General Crawford, I want to thank you both very much. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't thank you both so much for your service to our country. Uh, we, we owe you a huge debt of gratitude. So thank you.